Amen. It's been so good to worship together this morning. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, find James chapter 4. James chapter 4. And while you look for it, let's celebrate a couple cool things that happened this week. If you didn't know, Camp Katie's was this week, and we had a number of students participate. And I just wanted to give you some stats from Camp Katie's this week. 14 teams, 91 students, 98 adults, 121 projects completed. So they went around and helped with ramps. They mowed, they cleaned up yards, they served food, they did random acts of kindness. 662 meals delivered. There was a VBS that happened at the way, and they had 30 students enrolled in that. They had nine professions of faith, two of them from this church. So that's exciting. That's right. And the church will be following up with those students in the days ahead. And then we had one, there was actually one student that was part of Camp Katie's that was called uh, to ministry. So called, yes, that's right, that's right. So very excited about that. And a special shout out, particularly to the adults. We had uh, several adults that served. I know Steve and Tammy, I know Kevin, and I know Ramona and some others probably served as well behind the scenes in various ways. So just been a good a good week with all that occurred with that. So thankful for Camp Katie's and for the work that the Lord did there. Let's look, James chapter 4. I've been continuing in our study through this book, and we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 12. Verse 1 to verse 12. The Word of God says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot contain, or cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you." Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not doers of the law but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of God. The scripture teaches that we are at war. The New Testament uses this language of spiritual warfare. 
putting on the armor of God, Jesus teaches that we have an enemy who seeks to kill and destroy us. We are at war. And in order to win the war, we got to know who the enemy is. And Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, puts it this way for us. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, our warfare is not against people, but against the powers at work behind them. Because we've got to realize this, behind every evil, behind all evil people, all evil ideologies, and all evil actions are evil forces at work in the world. And in order to win the war, we got to know the power of the supernatural forces at work in the world. We've got to recognize behind everything is a spirit at work. And this evil spirit, our enemy, would love nothing more than for God's people to act just like the world's. And while people are not the enemy, every single one of us is caught in the middle of this war. And we are tempted to wrestle with flesh and blood. We're tempted to do war with one another rather than doing war with the one behind all of the quarrels and the strife. We're tempted to do war with our closest friends, our neighbors, our church members, even to set up those people, whoever they might be in your mind, as the problem. When really the problem is the, the forces behind those ideas and those things that wage war against us. Friends, long before the days of cell phones and social media, the church found itself at war with itself. That's where James finds himself. The church began looking more like a world at war than a sanctuary for sinners. And chapter 4 is writing to this church. The people were at war with themselves, living and fighting just like the world. And James wants to give us a strategy for battle. And a strategy that will win the battle. He gives us a pathway to winning the war against worldliness. Winning the war with worldliness. And here's the first thing he says we have to do in order to win the war. We first have to recognize the danger. We have to recognize the danger. Look at verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Here's what he says. Every battle without begins with passions within. That there were passions at war within them that produced quarrels and fights among them. Their passions were tempted by the powers of darkness in order to produce sin in their hearts and for them to live in war with one another. In fact, earlier in James, he diagnoses the problem of sin. And he says it this way, James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. He tells us temptation begins within, that we all have passions and desires that can be lured and enticed 
And when they're lured and enticed to act in that way, they give birth to sin, and then sin gives birth to death. He gives you the family tree of sin from temptation to death in two generations, right? And it begins with passions within us. We've got to recognize that all of us are in danger of being at war with others, All of us are in danger of living like the world. All of us have weak spots in this war, and it causes conflict and problems in our life. Look back at chapter 4. James goes on to say this. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your own passions. Notice again, the battles without began with desires within. Rather than seeking God's will, they sought their own will. They made that old classic Frank Sinatra song, their battle cry. They want it their way, right? They wanted what they wanted. They were going to live like the world and get the things of the world. And rather than asking God, he says, they took matter and just matters into their own hands. And here's James's conclusion about this. Look at verse four. You adulterous people. Friends, James is not happy. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Rather than fidelity to God's truth, they were following after the world's lies, and they were losing the, world, the war with worldliness. They sought to be friends with the world. Friends, you don't curl up against the enemy. He says, rather, they lived as enemies of God. It says when it uses that word enmity, it means to be at war with God. They were living as adulterous people with divided affections, divided loves, and by seeking to be a friend of the world, and the world here is the world system, the the ideologies and all of the thoughts behind it, they ended up being at war with God. And friends, verse 4 isn't just a warning to them. It's a warning to us. We will always live as a people at war with the world, not talking about the people in the world, but all that's at work within it, because we are people of another world, living in a place that is not our home. And we'll always be pulled between serving God and serving the things of this world, between getting what our sinful hearts want and getting what God wants, between worldliness and the word of God. And almost all the problems in the war around us are due to compromise to worldliness. And we've got to recognize this is a danger for all of us. We can make war with the wrong people. Notice they were making war against each other. That wasn't even where where the battle was. They were doing friendly fire and contributing to worldliness rather than fighting against it. It begins with giving ourselves over to the sinful desires within. Notice verse 5, which puts it this way. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within 
us. Now, this is a notoriously difficult verse to translate. If you put multiple translations, whether on your Bible app later, you can go and hit the compare, and it'll give you a bunch of different translations. Or you grab different Bibles. When you get home, you're going to see that translators come to different conclusions as to what this looks like. You're going to see some that, that want to ask, well, which scripture is being quoted here? It appears James isn't necessarily directly quoting one passage of Scripture, but he's probably giving us some total of what the Scriptures say about something. Some will translate the he in the passage as capitalized, meaning it's God rather than man. Some want to understand the Spirit to mean the Holy Spirit rather than our inner spirit or our soul. So if you look at these various translations, you're going to get various thoughts. Let me sum it up and say, here's what I think James is trying to to communicate. I don't think he's trying to make a reference to God or to the Holy Spirit here. I think he's simply telling us that in our spirits, in our inner souls, in the inner part of us, we yearn with jealousy. This is a very negative term. This is not a good thing to yearn with jealousy, that the problem is our negative sinful desires that begin within And James is saying that man is full of these things and that this is the teaching of the Scripture. He's likely thinking back to Genesis chapter 6 when both before and again in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, man's heart is described as always evil continually. And James' point is this. In order to win the world with worldliness, we must recognize the danger we are all in. You can't begin to fight a war if you don't know you've been recruited. You can't even begin to really fight a war if you don't know you're at war and that there is a world around you that is seeking to deceive you, to bring you. There are spiritual forces at work in this world desiring to tempt you and to pull you away. To win the war, you've got to recognize the danger. Second, he says, to win the war, you've got to receive God's grace. You've got to receive God's grace. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Friends, I don't know about you, but when I begin to consider that I'm at war against these spiritual forces and my desires are being tempted, and whenever I look at some of my desires, I'm like, man, I, I'm discouraged. I'm like, I have no way of winning this war by myself. How can I conquer? How can I win? James gives the answer in verse 6. No matter how great your sin is, he says, God gives more grace. In fact, he quotes from the book of Proverbs that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. His answer to conquering the world with worldliness isn't just to buckle up your bootstraps and run harder in your own power. The secret, the key is to humble yourself before the Lord and receive grace. You cannot win the war in your own power. You must bow under God's grace and receive both pardon and power for the war ahead. See, we often get very confused when we talk about our definition of grace, you know the church answer, right? Grace is unmerited favor, which is honestly very unclear because, again, I don't think that often tells folks what is it, right? 
It tells us grace being unmerited favor means it's unearned forgiveness, right? Grace is how you're forgiven of your sin. You can't earn it through works. It's given freely as a gift, right? Grace, yes, is pardon, but friends, grace is also power. Grace is, yes, full, free, pardon from your sin, but it's also power over your sin and power over your desires. Let me show you this. The Apostle Paul says it this way, 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Now it says, grace works within us. And by his grace, we are what we are. And that shouldn't lead us to sort of step aside and be passive, but rather to pursue by faith grace to overcome. Historically, the church has had a number of practices they have called means of grace. And they're not talking about do these things in order to be forgiven, but they are saying do these things in order to have God's power at work in your life. Bible reading is a means of grace. Prayer, God help me, is a means of grace. Coming and doing what you're doing this morning is meant to be a means of grace, to hear the word of God preached and to be among the people of God fasting, even giving. These aren't ways to be pardoned, but they are ways we're freed and empowered by grace to work even harder for the Lord. We win the war with grace-driven efforts. Grace-driven effort. If you want to win the war, you need the proper weapons of warfare, the means of grace. Have you ever just said, God, give me grace to overcome today? Because we have a high priest who is sympathetic to our weakness and we're told is able to give us grace in our moment of greatest need. We come to the word of God and say, God, speak to me. And when we come to something that's difficult to do, we go, God, help me to do it. Humble ourselves under his grace and we're promised he will lift us up. But before we can do any of that, we need to receive God's grace. And in fact, I love that he starts there because if you begin to look over verse 7 to 10, you see 10 commands, 10 imperatives, 10 here, do this regarding our war against worldliness. And so James starts in the right place. He says, before you can ever do any of these things, you gotta have grace. You gotta understand that grace always precedes obedience. And if you begin to get it backwards and think that you work harder in order to get grace, you're going to miss life transformation and end up in slavery and losing the war. He says, no, you need grace in order to work. Grace in order to obey. Grace in order to do it all. And in these four short verses from 7 to 10, Back to back, James gives us 10 commands. And I'm not going to give you a 10-point sermon on every single one of these commands, but I do think I can sum them up in three uh, commands, three things he's telling us. He continues giving us a game plan for winning the war with worldliness. Here's the first thing he says. He says that in order to win the war, we've got to resist the devil, recognize the danger, receive God's grace, and resist the devil. Look at verse 7. 
Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Notice he says, submit to God. Place yourselves under him. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble, and the humble are those who place themselves under him. But then he says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is really two sides of the same coin. Receive God's grace, submit your life to him, and resist the devil and his schemes. And the apostle Peter actually echoes this command, 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. I love this. Look, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in faith knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. He says, first, resist the devil. And he says, do so by keeping your mind turned on. Be sober-minded. Don't just turn your head off and just let anything flow into it. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Know the enemy. How can you win a war if you don't know your enemy? Did you know the term devil is less of of his name and more of a descriptor of what he does? The term devil means slanderer, someone who accuses you, sometimes falsely and sometimes not falsely. You know, the devil's always described in respect to the words he speaks. Jesus says he's the liar and the father of lies. He's the devil, the accuser of of the brothers. Even the name Satan, or the title Satan, means he is an adversary with God's people. Our enemy does war with words, and our enemy is trying to get us to believe what is false, trying to get us to even believe that maybe what Christ has forgiven you of, he's trying to remind you and make you think that Christ couldn't forgive you of that trying to accuse you deep inside of the deepest, darkest things of your past and saying, hey, Christ hasn't forgiven you of that. He's getting you to try to doubt him. But friends, and he's trying to get us to become his agents of speech, to slander, to lie, and to attack others with our speech. To be, to when the world comes into the church, you can tell it by the way we speak about one another. And the desires that we bring into the church, Satan is trying to get us to lose the war against worldliness and to be busy being at war with each other. Look at verse 11 of James 4. I love how he connects right up with this. Do not speak evil against brothers. Why? Because if you're busy doing that, you're not fighting the war you're supposed to be fighting. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? He says, friends, don't be so worried about what everybody else is doing that you're not concerned about your place in the war. Good soldiers aren't necessarily worried about what every other soldier is busy doing or not doing, but they're focused on their job. I'm going to put forward, focus in, and I'm going to be my part in the war against the accuser. The accuser accuser would love for you to accuse others, 
The father of lies wants to lie through you. The enemy wants to get behind our ranks and get us at war with our tongues. And we must resist him, stand firm, be watchful. We must be aware of the influence the world can have on us. And Satan would love nothing more than for us to become passive soldiers. In fact, the greatest lie Satan ever told is that he doesn't exist. If you don't know the enemy exists, then friends, the enemy's got you right where he wants you. The worst sort of cancer is undiagnosed cancer that can grow without getting the treatment it needs. Friends, that, this is why James tells us we must submit ourselves to God and resist the devil. Because notice the promise. If we resist him, he will flee from you. Friends, if he, if, you, if he resists him, he will flee from you. Why? Because, friends, our God is greater than our enemy. Our enemy is a lion, but he's not the Almighty. He is not the lion of the tribe of Judah. In fact, the Bible tells us that when Jesus died and rose again, Satan was defanged, declawed, and declared to be a dead enemy. Friends, he's nothing but a tiny house cat with a lot of talk. And we are able to stand firm, to resist. Revelation chapter 12 recounts our hope. There's this big scene in that chapter of heaven and, and the forces of evil at war against each other and the people of God caught in the middle. And then we read this. And they conquered him, him being the serpent, Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. We need our testimony of the person and work of Christ. We need to speak about the power of the blood to bring both pardon and power. We need to speak words that call us to remember what matters most. In fact, it's important that we realize fighting worldliness is a community project. Notice it says, they together conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the words of their testimony. To win the war against worldliness, we've got to resist the devil. Pursue grace. It says, love God more than life. Win the war against worldliness. And if you haven't figured it out, your relationship with God is key to that. James says it again in verse 8. In case you missed it, he says, first submit to God. Then he says, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. In other words, here's the fourth piece of the battle plan. He says, run to God. Run to God. And see the promise, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. You cannot fight the temptations of this world and the powers of the kingdom of darkness on your own. Don't even attempt it. It simply doesn't work. He says, rather, draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. The language is one of intimacy, of approaching in communion with the Almighty. It's the language of priests entering the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. And see it, you can draw near to God. I don't think those words land on us with the level of, of awe that they should, we can come in to his presence. 
We can commune with the creator of the universe. Some people seem to act like I've got God on speed dial. If you're a Christian, friends, we all have God on speed dial. He's in your contacts. You can talk to Him even if you've blown it. Consider the parable of two sons. We're all familiar with this, right? There's one son, the prodigal son. He broke relationship with his father. He took his inheritance early. He disowned his father, and he went to Vegas and squandered his money, basically, right? He went and did whatever he wanted. I don't need you, Dad. I'm going to go spend my money however I want. And the, pen, and the son ends up, he went from the penthouse to the pig pen. And he's in the mud, and it says there he came to his senses, and he turns to return home. And he says, I'm even willing to come back as a servant. He would rather still be in the pig pen as long as he has his father's presence there. And then look what happens. He turns to come home, and we read this, Luke 15, 20. And as he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Friends, the father was waiting on the front porch with some sweet tea, ready for his son to return. And when his son came, we see the father ran, embraced him, kissed him, and threw a huge party to welcome him home. So the good news, friends, is you're the son, and the father is our father in heaven. No matter how far you've wandered, when you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. He didn't even have to get further than the property line for the father to just take off in a run. And when you draw near to God, we're told you are able to stand firm against the devil's schemes. You're able to win the war against worldliness because you know who you are. Once you know you're loved by God and adopted as his child and you're secure in him, you're a citizen of another world, a son or daughter of the Most High, what can the words of the accuser do to you? And that will change everything about how we live in the world and how we live among the people of God. And it's so important that we understand in this section, some of my English nerds will love this, all of these verbs are what we call second-person plural verbs. Now, you English folks are on it with me. Some of the rest of you are all like, uh, what? Tell, tell me what that means, Matt. Here's what it means. It means you could write in before each of these commands the word y'all. These are y'all commands. Second-person plural. Y'all need to do this. Every command in this section, he's telling us to do together. Y'all draw near to God. Y'all resist the devil because a soldier cannot win a war without an army. You can't win the war against worldliness without the help of the church, the people of God. I'm not talking about a building with a structure. I'm talking about the people that have committed to you and you're committed to them. Friends, show me a Christian without the church and I will show you someone captive to the enemy. Because we need the people of God. Again, it's not about a building. It's not about the actual location, though locations aren't bad. It's about people that we've actually committed to go to war with. We've locked arms with and said, we're going to do this together. And he says, we need to together resist the devil, run to God, and in order to win the war, we need to fifth and finally repent 
of our sins. Repent of our sins. Look verse 8 to 10. Again, he's going to give us multiple commands back to back, but really he's telling us repent. This is sort of the, the summary of what he's saying. Look at verse 8. Draw near to God, I'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, I think when we hear the word repent, a lot of us have pictures of that guy at these festivals standing there with a sign and it's obviously got fire on it. It looks like it was you know, very badly photoshopped, and it says, repent, right? But I don't think we have ever really tried to define what that word means. You see, the prodigal son, when he got out of the pig pen and went back home, he repented. Repentance is turning from the way you're living and turning back toward the one who made you. It's turning around. That's what he's saying to do. And turning around really can't be done unless you begin to see that the way you're going is very unpleasant, you got to cleanse your hands. You're not pure in this. you got to mourn and weep. I'm not going the right way. i got to turn around. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he'll exalt you. Notice back in verse 6, he says to humble ourselves. Now in verse 10, he sort of sandwiches it in again. Humble yourselves and he'll exalt you. Because humility is not possible apart from repentance. We have to all admit that we are often going the wrong direction. and need to be sort of turned and led in the right direction. Let me tell you this. Repentance is part of what's missing in the American church today. We will often tell folks, well-meaning, I think, to ask Jesus into their hearts. And I think I know what they mean to say, but I have yet to find a verse that talks about that. But what we need to tell folks is to repent and turn to Jesus. We never mention that Jesus actually calls us to change the way we're living to change the way we're walking, not in our own power, but by the Spirit of God at work within us. In fact, the message of the gospel and the message of the apostles and the message of Jesus was to repent and believe. Let me give you a a proof of this. Acts chapter 20, verse 21. They were testifying to both Jew and to Greeks. Just so you know, it's for them, that's everybody. You were either a Jew or you were a Greek of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We need both to be truly brought into relationship with God, and we need both to continue in our life in order to walk a healthy relationship with God. He's not calling us to perfection, because none of us are there, right? But rather a new direction towards sin in your life. He says, cleanse your hearts, be single-minded rather than double-minded, be broken over sin, mourn and weep rather than laugh, to humble ourselves in repentance. God promises to exalt us, to bring us to himself, to turn and to at least seek in our power with God's resources, with his power, to live as he would call us to live. It's not just to say we're sorry, friends, you can be sorry for something and continue to do it over and over and over again without a change. Rather, he says we are to turn and trust in Jesus. Friends, we are in a constant war with worldliness. And that means, friends, we are all going to sin. We're all going to lose battles. But Jesus promised we would win the war. 
In fact, let me show you this. Martin Luther, famously, he posted his 95 theses on the door, right, uh, to start the Protestant Reformation. And I want to show you the first thesis that was there on those 95 theses. I love this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intends that the entire life of believers should be repentance. All of life should be one of repentance. So here's what that should tell us. First off, it should mean none of us should ever pretend like we've just got it all together. Like we've arrived. Because again, we're told when it says repent, friends, that means our whole life should be repenting. It doesn't matter how old or how mature you've gotten, friends. Repentance is part of life. To be directed until God brings us home. But it also means, friends, the war isn't won in a day. And the war isn't defined by a day in your life either. All of us today have been given a new opportunity to repent, to run to God, to resist the devil, and to receive anew his grace, which pardons and empowers. Friends, whatever's happened in your life, that doesn't have to define you any longer. You can get out of the pig pen and you can come home have we recognized the danger among us? Would we say we are living as worldly people with worldly desires? Because God has given us a means of grace today in the community of faith, even being here and hopefully having relationships with others who can help us if we're willing to be open and to humble ourselves. Friends, in the word of God, to hear it and to respond in the songs we sing and friends in the Lord's Supper, which we're going to prepare to take. All of that is a means to empower us and to point us back to God and His grace. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is a graphic picture of what Jesus has done for us. The bread represents His body broken and torn apart. The juice represents his blood poured out for the sins of many. And the Lord's Supper is something that all Christians, all baptized followers of Christ are invited to take part in. But we're also told in the scriptures to cleanse our hearts and to come, having renewed and having come home again to the Father. It is, in one sense, the welcome feast of the Father, a picture of that when the prodigal son came home. So as we prepare to take the supper, what we should ask ourselves in these next moments is, have I come back home? Am I in right relationship with my maker? Have I put aside worldliness and have I put aside um, conflicts and quarrels with others in my life? And can I take of his goodness and grace today anew and afresh and be reminded of the body and blood of Jesus? I'm gonna pray Jeremy's going to lead us, and we're going to have folks come forward and distribute the elements. And remember, this is something that as God's people, we're meant to take together. So hang on to them, and we take them together to remind us that we are one body, and Jesus is working on us together. We're one army, feasting together and looking forward to the day when our king returns and the war is won. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're thankful that you love us. We're thankful that even though we're in a war, you promise us that you have already won the war. But, and Lord, you will bring it to full completion when you come. 
Lord, I pray that you would give us the gift of repentance, to repent of worldliness among us, to repent of quarrels among us, to help us be aware that we are in a spiritual war today, but that you've given us all the resources we need to stand firm. Lord, as we take the supper, help us to receive your grace if we haven't, help us to return home if we need to, and help us, Lord, ultimately to draw near to you that you may draw near to us. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
moment through the Lord's Supper, his that sort of a second sermon, a sermon in picture form of coming to him, of submitting ourselves to him, of literally taking his flesh and drinking his blood and placing our faith fully in him to nourish us for the road ahead. The Apostle Paul instructs us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and he says this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. A second sermon, a reminder for us of all of God's promises to us today, a way to draw near, and ultimately, friends, a, a, a picture of the victory meal that we're told will happen when Jesus returns and ends all of our battles against worldliness, against one another. And we look forward to that day. We're sent out into this world to do war, but also with a mission to proclaim the good news that this supper uh, represents. And we're sent out with a blessing, with a benediction from God's word from 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen: The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.